My name is Kathy Harrelson, and I'm excited to be sharing with you. This is our second of a five-week study of Jesus' seven sayings or seven words from the cross. I can tell you that they are all great, but this one is hands down my favorite, and so I am incredibly excited that I get to share about this one. As I was preparing for this, I was reminded of something that happened to me about a month ago. I am regularly in downtown Fort Worth, especially during the daytime, and so I'm always looking for a parking spot. And thankfully, they have meters now that sometimes you can pay with your credit card, which is very nice. But I also still have a pile of change that is in my car. Um, For some reason, about a year ago, my five-year-old niece decided I needed a Hello Kitty change purse. And little do I know, I do need it. And so I have a Hello Kitty change purse and change in it. And so I am ready for the parking meters. So I was meeting someone for lunch. I put the money in the parking meter, went in, had a great lunch, strolled back out to my car and saw, you guessed it, a parking ticket. However, I had put enough change in and I got a parking ticket. I did not deserve a parking ticket. So I, of course, was frustrated, came back to my office. You can actually contest parking tickets online, just so you know. And I said, explained, I paid, I mean, the whole thing. And they sent me a letter in the mail about 10 days later that said, you're right. Um, You didn't do anything wrong. You don't have to pay the parking ticket. I have to admit, though, Um, You can probably resonate with this, that there's been more than once when I have walked up to my car knowing that I didn't put enough money in or I'm running late and you're walking to your car and all you're thinking is, please don't let me have a parking ticket, please don't let me have a parking ticket. And I go and indeed there's a parking ticket. And I might be frustrated, I might be irritated that I got a ticket, but I know I didn't put enough money in or I was running late and I hands down deserved the parking ticket regardless of what kind of excuses I might choose to make. And something um, happens really with all of us. What do we do when we have a situation where there's a debt or a parking ticket that we can't pay? What do we do? Because really this has been a problem um, related back to the beginning of the scriptures. We see God creates this perfect world, puts Adam and Eve in this garden paradise, and then what do they do? They disobey God, and even though it is harsh, it is well-deserved punishment for what they've done. God is perfect and holy. They have disobeyed his laws, and they've gotten a punishment, and that punishment is death and separation from him. And we, they may want to offer excuses. In fact, they did offer excuses. However, it is something that they have earned and they deserved. And the entirety of Scripture from that point on is kind of the story of how humanity, you and I, as well as Adam and Eve, are in this problem of we need a Savior. We've got a parking ticket we can't pay, and what do we do about it? Is there any hope? And tonight, the passage we're going to look at is going to answer that question for us. So open your Bible to Luke chapter 23, and we are going to pick up in part of the story that you've read some verses in around your table. We have Jesus who has come and lived this perfect life, but is wrongfully on the cross being punished unjustly for something he hasn't done, a parking ticket he should not have gotten, but he's getting the punishment anyway. And we're going to pick up the story in verse 39 as Jesus is hanging between two criminals. In verse 39 of chapter 23, it says this, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to me, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I want us to look at the three people that are mentioned here in these verses, and let's see if we can learn some things about us as we start to put together this story to see if there's any hope for this problem that we all have. If you are um, familiar with the scriptures, or if not, that's okay, we are thrilled you're here. We've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which all tell the story of what is happening with Jesus on the cross. And so we're able to look at all four of those different books to see Jesus' different sayings and to see pieces of the story. So on your verse sheet, I want you to pull out and put right beside Luke chapter 23, Matthew 27, verses 35 through 44. And I want us to read also from another one of the Gospels to learn a little bit more about these people and about this circumstance that we're going to be looking at tonight. Verse 35, we start there, it says, And when they had crucified him, meaning Jesus, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At your tables, you've been able to read a little bit of the story and what Jesus has been accused of by the religious leaders who are trying to cause him some problems because they don't like him and they're envious. And they've said, they've gone to the Roman government authorities and they've said, hey, this guy's claiming to be a king. You better be careful. He's going to try to take over. He's going to try to take problems. So they've put this king of the Jews because they're kind of mocking Jesus and they're putting up there the charge that's against him. In verse 38, we see these two robbers that are a part of this story we're going to be learning about. There were two robbers crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You see what they're mocking him with. They're saying, If you're really who you've been saying you are, and if this charge against you is actually true, well then, come down. If you're God, you're able to do that. Get off the cross. If you're the Son of God, surely you have the power, and you would get down. You would end this suffering. So they are mocking him in this way. Verse 41 says, So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. They're saying, hey, if you're the son of God, show us you're the son of God. Come down and we'll believe you're the son of God. Verse 43 says, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I'm the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. So let's look at what we've learned about this first criminal as we piece together what we see in Matthew 27 and what we see in Luke 23. First, we see that this first criminal joins the crowd in mocking Jesus. He is making fun of Jesus and joining the crowds in mocking him. Now think about this from an earthly perspective. We learn in Luke chapter 23, verse 41, the second criminal clearly says, We're being punished justly. We're receiving the due reward of our deeds. 
the second criminal points out to the first criminal, he says, hey, we should be here. We've committed a crime, and we are experiencing the punishment that we should get. You may not like the parking ticket, but you did it, and you owe the fine. So we see this criminal is guilty, and he's receiving a just punishment. Now, the interesting thing is, what we can also learn, look back at your verse sheet at Matthew 27, verse 44. It says, and the robbers who were crucified with him also were vowed to him in the same way. So this second criminal starts off doing exactly what the first criminal is doing. He's mocking Jesus. He's reviling him. He's saying all these same things to him that the crowds and the first criminal are saying. Therefore, we see on our outline, the second criminal initially joins the crowd in mocking Jesus. And from an earthly perspective, he's admitted, I'm guilty and I deserve this punishment that I'm getting. May not like it, but I deserve it. Now then something happens. If you have your ivory sheet that's on your table, pull that out. I want you to look at it for just a minute. We can see it's got marked on here these seven sayings that Jesus said. And again, we're looking at the second one tonight. So you can see that somehow, somewhere between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m., we don't know exactly what was it, 9.01 or 9.10 or 10.43, but sometime in this time frame, Jesus has spoken the first saying, which Lynn taught us about last week, and then we have this second saying. So sometime between this 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. period, the second criminal is mocking Jesus, thinking he's not who he says he is, There's ma- he's making fun of him, And then something happens. Somewhere in this time frame, this second criminal is transformed, and he begins to say some different things. We've already read it in Luke chapter 23. He looks over in verse 40 at the first criminal as he's realized, "Uh uh-oh, I was just mocking this guy, but he's exactly who he said he was. And he looks at the second criminal and says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? He starts defending Jesus. And then what does he do? He asks Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He realizes, I was mocking this guy, but he is who he says he is. And he looks at Jesus and says, Remember me. And then Jesus says something to him which, if I'm honest, is kind of surprising to me because he's a criminal, he's admitted it, he's been mocking Jesus, and what does Jesus say to him? He says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now this creates a bit of a quandary for me because from eternal perspective, we've read in the entirety of the Bible up to this point that the guy is guilty, as are you and I, of sinning against a holy God. None of us in the room are perfect, right? And there's a punishment, death, for what we've done. So on the one hand, it looks like this guy's given a little hope. It looks like he may not have to pay his parking ticket. But if I'm honest, I'm a little bit confused. Like the rest of scripture has kind of been indicating sin's a big deal. They were kicked out of the garden before it. There are consequences for it. And Jesus just says, hey, come on into paradise. I'm like, what happened to to Genesis up to this point? Like, isn't sin still a big deal? Or did God just decide that day, you know, I'm normally just, but today, just forget it. Like, I'm just not, I mean, it's your lucky day, I'm not going to be just today. Like, I mean, there's hope for the second criminal, 
But admittedly, there's some questions that for me at least are a little bit confusing. So to answer those questions, we're going to look at the third person that we see here in the story, and that is Jesus. From an earthly perspective, and this is really important, we read that on our questions around our tables. It was very clear that even though Jesus is being punished, is he guilty of the crime that he has been accused of? Should he be being punished? No, he's innocent. Pilate and Herod even agree. He's innocent. So from this earthly perspective, Jesus is innocent and he's receiving an unjust punishment. This is a theme throughout these verses. Guilt, innocence, just, injustice. This is a theme that we see throughout leading up to this proclamation that Jesus makes. So Jesus is innocent, but let's also look at some other things we learn about him. I've picked out just a couple of stories I'd love for us to read. On your verse sheet, look at Luke chapter 5 and want to see what we learn about Jesus that might help us understand a little bit about what he's saying here to the second criminal. In Luke 5, 29 through 32, this is a story we read about Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large number of tax collectors and others reclining at table near him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with those tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Throughout his time on earth, Jesus spent a lot of time with the sinful and the needy on purpose. And there's this part of me that looks at Jesus being crucified between two criminals and thinks, that's just, that's just wrong. Like he hasn't done anything... Like, And it is, it's just wrong. But there's this part of me that thinks, he's come for criminals. He's spent his whole life with criminals. There's this little part of me that thinks, like, did I really expect anything else? Like, these are the people he came for. Let's look at Luke 19, and we're going to see again repeated this very similar and important theme. I'll read the story. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was too small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Listen to verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So this picture that we're seeing play out, we're seeing is not some accident. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And think about it. As you think about 
the crowd and the criminals, they're mocking Jesus and they're saying, if you're God, you'd come down. Surely if you were God, you'd have the power to end your suffering. And if you were God, of course you would end your suffering. But the irony of it is, Jesus stays on the cross because he is God and he's looking to provide an end to the suffering for others. They're mocking him and missing. It never crosses their mind that if you were God, you would choose to stay there, that there would be a purpose for that. And Jesus stays not because he's not God and can't come down. He stays because he is God. He's come to seek and to save the lost and is providing an end to suffering for the guilty and sinners for whom he came. The cool thing is, as we're painting this picture, we've seen that Jesus came and spent time with the sinful and needy to seek and save the lost. We see him here pictured actually doing it. And even after his death, and he's raised from the dead where he conquers sin and death, he then spends a little bit of time still on earth with his disciples, with people, and he's instructing them. And do you know what the last thing we hear him say is? before he goes back up to heaven. In Acts chapter 1-8, we see, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, what have they witnessed? They've witnessed a guy, God, who came to seek and to save the lost. They've seen his death. They've seen his resurrection. And he says, this very reason for which I came, I want you to go do the same thing that I have been doing. He says, you be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is a theme that has been throughout Jesus' life and he leaves, again, the last thing he says is, go do the same thing. Go tell people who and what you've seen about me so that they too can hear and have this hope. Now, I want us to pause for a minute, and we're going to take a group test here. So it's a very easy test. It's actually a logic test, which was my favorite part of school, which I know, now you think I'm crazy. But I love logic. I love problems and figuring them out. And so I want to give us a group logic test, and it's not really that hard, but I think it's important for us to think through. Okay, I'm going to give you a scenario, and you tell me if you think this is logical or right or just. If you have someone who is perfect and holy and does everything God says, does it make logical sense that you would get to spend eternity in paradise and in heaven with God, a perfect God? You're perfect, he's perfect, you get paradise. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. On the contrary, if you are not perfect and you are sinful and you have done wrong things to sin against a holy and perfect God, Does it make sense? I'm not saying that you like it. But does it make sense that you would be separated from him and experience a death and punishment? Okay. It's a parking ticket. You got it. You deserve it. Okay? Okay. That makes logical sense. Now, in light of what we've just read, I want to ask another question. Does it make sense that if you are sinful and needy and deserving of punishment, i.e. the second criminal, Does it make logical sense, does it seem just or right that you get heaven and paradise and an end to your suffering? No. 
And if you are perfect and holy and the God of the universe and Jesus, does it make sense that you would experience the punishment and wrath of God for sin? That does not seem right. So on the surface, we kind of have a, a logic problem or, or a justice problem. Like this, this doesn't make sense, does it? Let's look at the scripture as the scripture explains to us what actually happens here. Does the scripture say sin's not just big of a deal or God just decided not to be just that day? No, it describes something else. It describes a more significant transaction. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. For our sake he made him, meaning Jesus, the father made the son to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so there's this exchange that is going to take place. Jesus hasn't sinned, but he's going to get the sin and experience the punishment so that those, the sinners, like the second criminal, can have paradise and righteousness. Let's keep going and look again at 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24. We again see this theme, Jesus committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So clearly the answer to this logic problem is not that God just decided not to be just. That's not what happened. So we've got to eliminate that as a solution. Verse 24, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you are healed. Basically, Jesus said, you deserve this parking ticket, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to pay it. I'm going to take your sin. I'm going to take the punishment that you should have gotten. I'm going to experience it and I'm going to pay the ticket. He pays the ticket. He raises from the dead, showing he's overcome he's paid it in full so he pays the parking ticket of the second criminal so that the second criminal therefore his sins are totally paid for he didn't pay them but the ticket has been paid therefore he gets paradise it's just all the sins that needed to be paid for jesus paid god didn't just decide to not be just that day He showed how significant sin was and he showed what it cost for that sin to be paid for. So, God's justice is satisfied. However, you are probably thinking as I am, great, Kath, he definitely is just, but have you missed the whole idea of who does that? Like, who just looks at people that have been throwing and reviling you in the midst of your pain and says, Hey, I'll take your I'll take that for you. Like, yes, God is just, but we've got to acknowledge there's something else huge and significant going on here. Look in Romans five, verses six through nine, and we see something else that is so clearly pictured on the cross. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his what? Love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. Yes, there's justice, but there's also what? Love. It's shown so clearly here. I, I can guarantee you I wouldn't do that. I mean, I couldn't do that because, frankly, I'd have to pay for my own sins. But I wouldn't look at someone and say, hey, I'll take the wrath of God for you, and you've just been mocking me. I mean, maybe, but, like, probably not. (laughs) I just wouldn't. And Jesus does. In the midst of everything going on, experiencing the wrath of God, knowing that there's this criminal sitting next to him, he says, I know exactly who you are, and I love you. Now let's look at the promise. We've kind of built up to this point with seeing there is hope, and there's a way that this transaction, this hope is given that makes sense. Because we have to to make sense of it, because this theme of justice and sin and guilt and innocence has been building to this point, so we have to make sense of it. So now that it makes sense, what's the promise? What does Jesus look at and what does Jesus say to this second criminal? He says this. He says, truly. Now think about it. This is a guy that's probably heard and said a lot of lies in his life. And he's getting ready to be told something that's true. Truly I, I say to you, the God of the universe who knows everything and has never been wrong i'm getting ready to tell you something it's totally true you can absolutely bank on it you will be guaranteed regardless of what else happens in this entire experience of the second criminals having on the cross guaranteed will be jesus has never once nor ever will be wrong you will be with me in paradise. Can you imagine? Like, with me. Like, the God of the universe. This awesome, loving person. You're not even in some, like, secondary place where occasionally you can maybe see or come visit me. You're with me. What happened in the Garden of Eden was there was this separation between Adam and Eve and God. It created a distance in their relationship so that they could not exist in the same way they had before. Adam and Eve had to leave the garden and didn't experience God's presence in the same way. They left their paradise, and here we see Jesus looking at this criminal and saying, you're coming with me to paradise, to a place where there's no suffering, no pain. Your debt has been paid, and you're coming immediately, today, not after you've done something. What, what, was, what did he have to offer? He, he couldn't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go teach Sunday school or I'll be nicer to people or I'll give a little more. Or like, like today, not after some purgatory or something like that. Like immediately, you're coming with me, the God of the universe, to this amazing place. And the word that I've left blank on your outline because it's been the word that I have, as I've meditated on and thought about this saying, it's the word that I cannot get over. Today you, you, the one who has been mocking me, 
who has absolutely no right to be here, who's clearly a criminal, who's being shamed in front of all of these people. I know exactly who you are. God knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's done. Even more things that he's done than the people that have sent him to the cross know. And he says, I know exactly who you are. And yes, you I mean, Jesus has a lot of things going on. I mean, we've painted this picture. I mean, he's talking to the Father. He's experiencing the wrath of God for sinners. We're going to see him talk to his mother. Some of his followers are watching him. People are throwing things at him. I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, would you necessarily have even expected, if you're the second criminal, for Jesus to respond? And he does to one person, one sinful person. And as I think about this, I just put myself there and I think, yeah, you, Kath. Yeah, I know exactly who you are. Your sins are not hidden before me. I know, I know who you are. I know the sins that you don't want anyone else to see or know about or that you wish you'd never done. Not the person you put forward, but I know exactly who you are. You are sinful and ungodly. And I think to myself, and I should know better, and I still sin. I've got the Bible. I have parents who love me. I'm in an air-conditioned building. I'm, I mean, like, my life's, it's, I'm not on a cross. Like, I'm not experiencing pain, and I still sin. And the God of the universe looks at me of all craziness and says, yeah, you. Knowing exactly who you are, you, I love you. And it makes me want to drop to my knees. There's no way he should say that to me. But he does. And I can't fathom it. So what is our response to that? What do we do? Because we all walked in the door as either the first or second criminal. We all walked in guilty, deserving a just punishment for our sin. Every one of us did. And what is our response to that? Do we have the response of the first criminal who, to our knowledge, never looked at Jesus and believed in who he was? Or do we have the response of the second criminal that looks over at him and says, remember me? Totally open before God and says, remember me. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to bring salvation. And I don't know your story and you don't know all of mine but if you've walked in the door and you've never heard this before or thought that somehow you needed to pull it together before you came to Jesus or if you got all these things right then you could come and it would be okay and then you would come to church or whatever like that's kind of not how it works at all and so I want to make an offer to you via Acts 1-8, not because I've done anything, but because Jesus says to me, hey, Kathy, will you go witness to what you've seen? That's who Jesus is, and right now where you are, you can look at him one-on-one and say, remember me, because you're exactly who you said you are. And you too have this crazy, amazing promise that you get paradise with Jesus. And what if we walked in the door, or if you just accepted Jesus and believed in who he was, what if you're standing in the place of the second criminal? To be honest, he didn't have that much longer to live, 
And, and I have lived longer than he has since I put my faith in Christ. So what does that mean for me or for you if you walked in the door? And, and I would suggest that, at least for me, the past couple months as I've been meditating on it and thinking about it, can we live like we're that loved? Like it's crazy and we don't deserve it. But when you sin, don't hide. You're that loved. Go to the God who can forgive you and ask for forgiveness. Can you live in that much freedom knowing that what you've done is fully forgiven and you can walk on? Can you, can you live like you're that loved? Because his love isn't based on you, it's based on him and it's not going anywhere. You don't have to look for love anyone else, love anywhere else or in any other person or any other thing because you already, as a sinner, and he knows everything. He knows things nobody else knows about you. It's not hidden. You are that loved. Can we live like we're that loved? Um, next, we need to keep in mind that paradise with Jesus, which is so awesome, with this totally just, amazingly take-your-breath-loving individual, is maybe not today for me, though I, I could die today, I don't know, but maybe it's not today for me, but it's guaranteed, and in light of eternity, it's not that long. Like, that's the perspective we need to live with. That's the hope we have. That's the freedom from the guilt that we get to have. Keep in mind that paradise with Jesus will be here shortly, guaranteed, if you're in Christ. And then... Doesn't it make logical sense that we would want everyone else that we know and those we don't to get to see and experience and taste of the same love that we've been given? We get to be a witness that goes around and tells people, hey, this is who Jesus is, and this is what he's done, and this is what you can have in him. That's our joy and our responsibility and our privilege to be able to do that. My favorite thing that I've read, I always read lots of sermons or commentaries from different people on um, the passages when I study or, or teach them. And my favorite thing that I've read, um, this was at the end of a sermon that a, pastor, that a pastor had preached, and he says this. He says, by the way, if this verse doesn't, speaking of the verse we've just read, truly today I said to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Um, if this verse doesn't teach salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I don't know a verse that does. Because it's certainly not because this thief was a good person who'd earned his way to paradise. It's that the king, Jesus, has forgiven him and welcomed him into paradise, not because he deserved it, but because Jesus had paid for his sins and forgiven him of those sins and welcomed him by grace into his presence. If this verse doesn't teach salvation... By grace alone, undeserved, through faith alone, the guy had nothing to offer. He was getting ready to die. All he had was his faith in Jesus. In Christ alone, where was the only person and the only place he could go? Jesus was the only innocent one who could take his sins. And he was the only one loving enough and as deity could take the wrath of God and offer him paradise. If there was ever a verse that was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, this is it. 
And I'll tell you that I told you at the beginning, this is my favorite um, word or favorite phrase of Jesus from the seven. It's probably no secret why now. And um, I'll, I'll do you one further. I'll say, if you told me, Kathy, you get one message and only one message that you can talk about for the rest of your life. In all of the Bible, which one would you pick? Without hesitation, I'd pick this one. I don't know anything better. I don't know anything more important. And I will never, ever get over it. Pray with me. Jesus, I cannot believe that you look at sinful people and say to them that we get paradise, that you know exactly who we are, and that you love us. That is unfathomable to me and makes me want to sob because I don't deserve it and I don't know of any other love like that. Father, I pray for those of us in the room who may have never heard that before, that you would give them the faith to believe that. And for those of us in the room who have, by grace, believed that, would you help us to live like we're that loved? Would you um, constantly in our minds and in our hearts be talking about, telling about what we have witnessed is this perfect God take punishment for our sins, raise from the dead, and provide a way to suffering, for suffering to end, for a perfect paradise that involves being with him. Would you help us do that? Thanks somehow doesn't seem like enough, but um, it's, it's how we feel. So thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for being here. We look forward to seeing you next week. And um, we'll be looking at some more things that Jesus said from the cross. You guys have a great week.